So before we start this interview, I think we need to have a beer. You've come to the right place. Welcome to the School of Travels podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, hello again, listeners. As always, I hope you're doing well wherever you are out there in the world. And today, I really hope that you've got a cold beer handy because we're going deep into the beer industry with my old friend Matthew Boynton in Tokyo, Japan. Matthew actually contacted me after listening to the episode with Chef Lenka Brinzova in episode 41, which if you haven't listened to yet, listeners, I highly recommend it. When Matthew contacted me, he gave me an update on his life particularly that he had just opened a brewery in Tachikawa, Japan, which is on the western side of the greater Tokyo region, and he invited me down for a visit. Not only was it amazing to catch up with Matthew after so many years, but I was also blown away by how organized and professional his brewery already seems to be, despite opening in March 2020, right at the beginning of all this pandemic craziness. I actually met Matthew and his co-founder Dan Bellamy, in the first couple of years that I lived in Japan, about 15 years ago now. And at that time, Matthew and Dan both worked with me in the English teaching industry. I actually had no idea that Matthew and Dan had shifted over into beer, but it was fascinating to learn in this interview with Matthew how he made the leap. Unfortunately, Dan could not join us for the interview, but if you visit Sakamichi Brewing, both Matthew and Dan are usually there welcoming customers into their very cozy brewery. Just a note before we start, I did record this episode on location with Matthew, so there will be a constant sound of a generator going in the background. I've also added some bonus material at the very end of the episode where Matthew gives me a tour of the brewery, so stick around if you want to find out more about what goes on behind the scenes. Alright, pop open a cold one, sit back and relax, and let's head over to Sakamichi Brewing with Matthew. Welcome to episode 43 of the School of Travels podcast. Today, listeners, have a very special episode because right now I am in a brewery with the founder, Matthew Boynton. Hello, Matthew. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Becky. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for reaching out to me, Matthew. I I know that you've listened to a few episodes and you told me that, hey, we haven't seen each other and I think... Ooh, 16 years? Let's, let's not even go there. Let's not even go there. <laughs> it is so good to see you again. <laughs> it's good to see you too. Yeah. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, Matthew? Uh, well, as you said, my name is Matthew Boynton. Uh, I'm originally from the UK. Uh, I was born in a town called Birmingham, which is in the center of England. Uh, but I actually grew up in the north of Scotland, in Aberdeenshire. Um, I came to Japan, let's see, about 15 years ago. I think. Um, It's difficult to remember. Uh, And sort of did an English teaching thing for a while. But uh, about four years ago, I made a career change and have been working uh, working in beer ever since. All right. So first of all, let's go back to the Japan part when you first came. What made you come to Japan all those years ago? Uh, My wife. Uh, Although she she wasn't my wife at the time, Um, we met at university in Edinburgh. She was a visiting student over there uh, and we we got along, Uh, but she was only in the UK for a year. So when she went back to Japan, um, I naturally, I moved to Korea for a year. Um, (laughs) But we stayed together um, even while I was in Korea. And then after a year there, I moved to to Japan, to Tokyo, um, to live with her. Uh, And it's, it's a romantic story. It is. Oh, this is great. University sweethearts. Why did you go to Korea for a year and not Japan, Matthew? Uh, Yes, I've been asked that question before. Um, So I was looking around for different English teaching jobs as I was getting towards the end of university uh, and and searching online for different employers. Uh, But all of the the employers, the, the hirers that I talked to in Japan, I don't know, do you know the expression snake oil salesman? Yes. Yes, they, they seem to be promising the world, but delivering very little. Um, but then I talked to one recruiter in Korea who seemed very reasonable, who offered a good job, 
um, good security. And I thought, well, Korea is pretty close to Japan, so I'm sure my wife, my girlfriend won't mind. That's close enough. And well, things worked out in the end. Oh, nice. And then after a year, you were like, I need to get to the, I need to get to the final destination here in Japan. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I think we did the same kind of work when we first came to Japan. I was also teaching English. How did you find the teaching English world in Japan and Korea? I know they're very common roads for a lot of people to get to Asia when they're young. That's right, yeah. Um, in Korea, I worked in what was called a hagwon there, which is like a, an after school, a cram school, basically. Uh, and that was working just with uh, elementary school children. Uh, and. The, the children I worked with in Korea were all extremely gregarious. They had been studying English from a fairly young age. They were very keen to talk, um, very communicative. Uh, and then I moved to Japan and I worked in a, in a junior high school as an ALT in a junior high school in Saitama. And the children really could not have been more different. Um, they were, a lot of them were experiencing English for the first time in their lives. And they were in these huge big classrooms in front of all of their friends. Nobody wants to be the one who stands out, who makes a mistake. So they were not very gregarious and they were not very keen to talk or very communicative. So it was an interesting balance of challenges, right? In Korea, it was a lot about classroom management, about making sure that everybody got an equal chance to speak. Whereas as an ALT, uh, it was about getting one person to say something, just say something at any point during the lesson. And you had a Japanese teacher in the room with you as well? That's as right. ALT. Yes, yes okay. that's right. Yeah. So what made you make the switch? So were you teaching the whole time until you said four years ago you switched to beer? Yeah, that's right. So um, I think my teaching career lasted about 10 years. Uh, and towards the end, I was working um, for a company with an office in Ginza. But I had been sort of promoted out of the classroom. I was the, the head of HR at that company. So it was my job to basically to, to hire teachers who wanted to come and work uh, in the company. Um, but what I found was that after I'd been sort of essentially promoted out of the classroom, I lost a bit of motivation because I really enjoyed working with students day to day. And by this point, I was working all with adult students. And um, it was very motivating to help them to reach their goals. You know, I think English teaching gets a bit of a bad rap sometimes in Japan. As you say, a lot of people just use it as a tool to come over here sometimes. But if you're willing to, to put the work in, it can be extremely rewarding because people want to travel, they want to, to work overseas, they want to, to just expand their horizons, and it can be very rewarding to help them to do that. Um, so what I found was that after I was no longer in contact with the students, I was losing a bit of motivation, and it kind of felt like it was naturally that part of my career was drawing to an end. So. There's a brewery here in Japan called Baird Brewing, and essentially I just sent them an email saying, please can I have a job? And, uh, and I ended up working there. Um, they did their best to talk me out of it. That was essentially the interview process. Um, I went to meet the, the, uh, the head of the brewery, who's a guy called Chris Poole, um, and he wanted to just make sure I wasn't completely mad. Uh, and then he went and reported back to, to his boss and they had me down to the brewery itself, which is in Shizuoka in Izu. Uh, and I worked a shift there and then I talked to, to the management and they did their best to persuade me that this was a terrible idea and that I should stick to my secure office job in Tokyo. Uh, but I didn't listen to them uh, and I ended up working down there at that bad brewery in Shizuoka. Wow, what a shift. And I love that you just reached out to them. and. Um, did you just love beer? That was why you felt comfortable to send an email to this kind of company? or? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. So at the time, it almost felt like this was what I had been building up to throughout my career. So by that point of living in Japan and of working, uh, the company where I worked, it was a Japanese office environment. So my Japanese was starting to improve. I was starting to get better at speaking Japanese. Um, but um, when I went to university at first, I studied chemical engineering for the first year. Um, I, I was, it was a bit of a rude awakening because at the end of high school, I thought, well, thank God I will never have to do maths again in my life. I hate maths. I think I even tore up my maths books in a kind of ceremony. That's it. No more maths ever. And then I get to university and they're like, no, no, it's an engineering degree. You will be having maths lectures every day of the week at 9 a.m. And... Uh, <laughs> 
yeah, it, it was a bit of a rude awakening. I actually do enjoy maths a lot more these days, um, but at the time I was not into it. So I studied chemical engineering for a year and then switched to history. No maths. It was, uh, it was a big win for me. Um, but having that slight engineering type background, I felt would be a help um, in, a, in a brewery setting because it is essentially an engineering job as well as a creative job. Um, I also worked as a chef for some time when I lived in the UK. So I was used to dealing with ingredients, dealing with raw ingredients, keeping things sanitary, cleaning, which is a huge part of working in a brewery. Um, when I talk to people who don't work in the brewing industry, I always tell them that the brewing is 90% cleaning. And I don't think that's any exaggeration because it is absolutely essential that everything in the brewery is kept as spotlessly clean as possible and as sanitary as possible to prevent any chance of, of the beer getting infected as it is, as it is fermenting. Um, so I had this slight, very slight engineering background, uh, a background in you know, food handling, preparation as well, and then also an increasing Japanese ability. And also I really enjoyed drinking beer. So it felt like it would be you know, a natural progression almost to go and work in a brewery. That's amazing. Well, I'm really excited to talk about the, the brewery process and where we are right now, your own brewery. But before that, I just want to talk a little bit about Japanese culture for you. So what do you love about Japanese culture all these years that you've been here? Um, there are a lot of things that I love about Japanese culture. Um, I, I really enjoy living here. I think that the standard of life that is enjoyed here uh, is excellent. Um, I really enjoy the seasonality of Japan. And I know that it's sometimes a cliche um, to say, oh, well, Japanese people say we have four seasons as if everywhere doesn't have four seasons. Um, but perhaps what they mean is that you can really feel the seasons in Japan. And I, I think one place that we can really see that is in the supermarket. So back home in Britain, you can go and buy pretty much the same fruit and veg year-round. Sometimes, of course, those vegetables, those fruits will be, have to flow, will be flown halfway around the world in order to be there. Um, but that's not the case in Japan. It's so seasonal here. And the food that you see around you really reflects just what is fresh, what is available, what is in season now. Uh, and I, I enjoy sort of being in tune with nature in that way, feeling the passing of the seasons, changing the food that we eat working with what's fresh and what's ready and what's available. That's great. I wish I could be here a little bit of each season mm. since I'm not always here year-round these days. What's your favorite season? Ooh, difficult question. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say autumn. Autumn. Um, I'm sorry, Mum and Dad, that when I was small, I refused to eat mushrooms. I was an extremely picky eater when I was small. Uh, I now love mushrooms. I'm uh, the same. I, oh, they're so great here. They're, they're so good. And there are so many different kinds of mushrooms as well. Yeah. So especially in autumn, I think that's real peak mushroom season. So making a nice mushroom stew or risotto or something. Excellent. Do you have any mushrooms in the beers? <laughs> Not yet. No, that's, that's an interesting idea. I'm not uh, so familiar with the brewing process. Maybe it's going to taste strange. I don't know. but I don't think I've ever seen a mushroom beer but that's not to say that it can't be done. They both have very earthy tastes, I think. Maybe there could be a marriage there that it's true, yes. seem awkward at first. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of umami in mushrooms, right? That's, that's certainly an interesting idea, Becky. I'll, I'll have a think about that. <laughs> Send me a photo if you ever <laughs> get this creation off the ground. Absolutely. All right, and then let's talk about the flip side. So are there any things in Japan that you find distressing or difficult for you to deal with? Uh, I, I don't think so, no. Um, of course, no matter where you are in the world, there are going to be things that you don't like about your immediate surroundings. There will always be frustrations uh, in your life. But um, I don't think there is anything about, about Japan that I would like to, like to change, um, with the possible exception maybe of just the amount of rules and regulations that there are, especially when it comes to starting your own business. Or to, to new enterprise. Um, with the fairly moribund state of the Japanese economy, you would think that the government would be very keen to encourage new businesses to start up. Uh, and that is certainly the message from some parts of the government, but then you'll find that other parts of the government, the local government, that's very much 
not the case. And there are a lot of barriers between having an idea and actually being able to put that into practice to be able to start some new enterprise or some new business. Right. Let's talk about that now because uh, can you tell me when did you start your own business here? When did you open this place? So the tap room itself was opened in March, in mid-March, which was really just classic timing on our part. Of this year, right? Of this year, yes. Um, But we, the the business itself was founded in October last year, and I sort of started the process of getting together all the documents and everything that I needed to to start the business uh, last August. So I actually left my previous job at the end of last July. Okay, so let's start, I guess, with what made you shift from your, the Baird Brewery to starting your own brewery, which, wow, that's taking on so much more. Uh, again, a very good question. So I, I worked at Baird for a little, about a year and a half, uh, I would say, down in, in Shizuoka in Izu, really beautiful part of Japan. I loved it down there. Um, the beer was excellent. It was an excellent place to learn as well. Um, although I say I had a little bit of ingredient handling experience, of engineering experience, really nothing could prepare you for actually going and doing the job. It was a completely new experience for me. Uh, and so my first few weeks there, I was starting work at 8, finishing at 4.30, going home, eating a quick meal and then falling asleep almost immediately because it was just so exhausting you know it's physical work I'm not as young as I once was but also you're learning so much every day that it's mentally exhausting as well what were you doing exactly those first few weeks um cleaning essentially um as I said cleaning is is absolutely vital when you work in a brewery and so that's the first thing that you learn how to do um I listened to your last episode with your flatmate and she was talking about how when she started in different kitchens she was often given the small jobs to do basically the jobs that nobody else wanted to do and uh, it's very similar when you work in a brewery okay the first thing you need to do here is a floor it is dirty please make it not dirty Uh, here are some kegs that have come back to the brewery they need to be cleaned on the outside before we can clean the inside so here's a toothbrush here is some soap get to work they really give you a toothbrush if you want to clean the inside of the mouth of a keg, that's one of the best tools that you can use. Oh my gosh. Um, but it is so important that everything be clean that I think it was, it was good and it was a good experience to, to really get to know all the different parts of the brewery and to understand how vital cleanliness was. So we start with relatively small and simple things like a floor or a keg, and then we'll move on to some more complicated things like um, a fermentation tank or a lagering tank. It's not as simple now. We don't use a toothbrush to, to clean those. We'll use some machines and some strong chemicals. So you need to be more aware of, of safety in that case. Uh, and then we'll move up to cleaning the actual brewing equipment itself, which is more complicated because there are lots of valves, there are lots of pipes and lines everywhere, all of which need to be cleaned in a specific order or in a specific way. Uh, and once you understand how to clean everything, you find that you've actually got a good understanding of how it all works. You understand where the lines go and what the valves do, what they open and close. Um, So cleaning there was a a really good way to to get to know the brewery, I think. So similar to to Lenka, I I started off um, cleaning everything and and doing a lot of dirty and difficult jobs. Um, The most difficult job in the brewery, the one that they always gave to the newest people, was something called hop diving. Um, Never heard of this. (laughs) If if I was to say to you that there are basically four ingredients in beer, would you be able to tell me what those four ingredients are? I used to know. I'm putting you on the spot here. Yeah, I used to know. I knew hops is one of them. Hops is one of them, yeah. Yeast. Yeast is another one, yeah. Water. Water, excellent. And? And wort. You said wort before barley? Yes, that's exactly right. Oh my gosh. An expert here. (laughs) Um, So when we make the beer, one of the things we do is we, we boil the wort. The wort is essentially the sweet juice or soup that we get from the barley. And we boil that in order to stabilize it and also in order to be able to put hops into the wort. So the wort, uh, the hops will uh, give flavor, give bitterness, 
and also to a certain extent sterilize the beer and make it more stable. Um, but at Baird we only ever used whole flower hops. So these are hops that have been dried but otherwise not processed at all. They're still in there. They look a bit like small pine cones. Can I ask where you get hops? I don't even know where it comes from. I just heard that word. They grow on a vine actually uh, and they grow really tall um, and they are essentially the undeveloped flowers of this vine. Um, is it called the hop spine or what is the vine? Yeah, yeah, a hop, oh, okay. a hop vine. And you just grow them, they just grow. Um, so hops are, are fairly temperamental. They like a lot of water, but they don't like a lot of humidity. Uh, and they like certain kinds of soil. Um, they like a nice hot summer as well. So there are certain parts of the world where they grow really well. Uh, unfortunately, Japan is not really one of them because it's so humid here. There are some hop farms up north, um, but most of our hops at Baird came either from the US, um, places like Washington, uh, Washington State, the Yakima Valley is very famous for hops, um, or from uh, Europe. Um, it was actually quite interesting to see the different ways that the hops arrived. We ordered quite a lot of hops from, from Germany, they have big hop farms in Germany. Uh, and so when they harvested the hops, they would obviously dry them first, but then they would pack them really, really tightly into these very squashed down um, uh, vacuum sealed bags. And when you opened up one of those, you actually have to use a hammer and a chisel to, to carve off the amount of hops that you wanted to use in your beer. Um, the Americans, however, were not so space conscious and they would just throw them into these big bags and of course they were vacuum sealed and they were treated very well but they were not crushed down at all so you could just reach in there and pull out the hops that you wanted. Um, but we once um, opened up a fresh bag of hops from America, um, look inside and what's waiting for us? There's a knife just sitting on top of the hops. <laughs> Somebody must have dropped their knife as they were processing them. Um, I have to tell you, it smelled incredible that knife. And, well, we weren't complaining. We got a new free knife for the brewery. Bonus. A bonus knife, yes. <laughs> Which, really, the smell, the smell of that knife was fantastic. So you throw hops into the boiling wort when you're making the beer um, in order to bitter the beer and to give it flavor. Um, but after you've finished boiling, you transfer that wort out, but you leave the hops behind. They're these kind of pine cone things, so obviously you don't want those in the beer, and they've already given the beer everything that you want from them. So now you've got a big kettle full of hot, wet hops. How are you going to get them out? I'll tell you how you get them out. Somebody has to get in there with a bucket and, uh, and dig them out. That's still done. <laughs> There's no machine going down there and digging them out. Machines are expensive. Um, so, of course, there are some brewing systems that you can get where everything is automated, but we like to do things by hand at bed. And so the best way to do it was somebody got in the kettle, obviously after it had cooled down, and basically dug out all of the hops with a bucket and a, and a sieve to squeeze out the excess juice. Sounds fun. Oh, it was great. Absolutely great. Uh, and that was called hop diving, and that was one of the jobs that was given to the newest members of staff. So I knew that I was graduating up the totem pole when somebody else was given the, the hop diving job instead of me. A newer person came along. Wow. But do you, I mean, you must miss hop diving these days. Oh, oh yes, absolutely. I sometimes fill my bath up at home with, uh, with hot hops uh, and just get in there and roll around. It's a real nostalgia trip. So how beer is made. Um, as you mentioned, there are four basic ingredients to beer. You have malted barley, hops, water, and yeast. And so the first thing you do is you take your malted barley and you crush it in a mill. Um, we don't pulverize it, we're not turning it into a powder, but you just want to kind of crack the external shell of this barley. Uh, and then you take all that cracked barley and you mix it with a determined amount of warmish hot water. Okay, the temperature of the water is actually quite important because there are enzymes in the barley that will activate at certain temperatures and will convert the starch that's in the barley into sugar. And it's that sugar that we want. And so we mix them together, we leave them for a set amount of time, and then we separate 
what is now quite a sweet liquid from the barley, and that is called wort, W-O-R-T. We use a lot of German words in brewing beer. Um, and so we separate that wort out from the crushed barley, and we boil it again for a set amount of time. And during this boil, we may add some hops, occasionally some other flavorings as well. Uh, and then after you finish boiling it, you cool it down, put it into a fermentation tank, uh, and add some yeast, and the yeast will eat all of the sugar that we have prepared from uh, the malted barley and change it into essentially carbon dioxide and alcohol. And that is how beer is made. If you add ingredients like a pomegranate flavor or you, all these different flavors you see in breweries, when would those be added? Uh, there are different ways of doing that. Uh, and there are maybe different philosophies about how that should be done. So at Baird, we did like to do um, fruited beers sometimes especially using seasonal ingredients. Again, going back to that seasonality of ingredients in Japan. Um, so for example, around about New Year, we made a beer with yuzu in it. Uh, and essentially what we did was a bunch of us jumped into some vans and drove up into the mountains around the brewery uh, and scrumped some yuzus. Sorry, that's a British word. Do you know what scrumping is? Did you like steal them off the trees? There you go, that's, that's exactly <laughs> what it means. Maybe I'm misremembering that. I do remember that local farmers were, were given beer out of the truck as well, so I think they were uh, recompensed for their users. Um, and then we took them all back to the brewery and um, we zested and juiced all of the users. So that's uh, a very long and time-consuming job, but it smells absolutely incredible in the brewery for that week. And then we just added the juice and the zest into, into the beer. Um, so you can either add it during the boil, which will sterilize the juice, obviously, uh, and then that will go into the fermenter and the fermentation. During the fermentation, the yeast will eat all of the sugar. So you're not left with a sweet beer, but rather something that smells and tastes of, of user. Um, or you can add it later on in the process as well, and then you'll get much more of the aroma and less of the flavor from the user. Um, so at bed, the philosophy was very much to use natural ingredients as much as possible and to process them as little as possible as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really enjoyed that philosophy, but it did lead to you know, a lot of work, a lot of cleanup, because you're left with all of these user skins that you have to deal with as well. And just not every brewery has access to that kind of manpower or access to those kind of ingredients as well. So it is possible to buy pre-processed uh, kind of purees of a passion fruit or a yuzu or really any other kind of fruit or something that you want to add in. And a lot of those today are really excellent. Uh, and we would use those in, in the same way. So you can add them during the boil, you can add them during the fermentation, you can add them later on. Um, there's a process by which we add a lot of hop aroma to beer, which is called dry hopping, which when the beer is finished fermenting, we will add hops to the cold beer. And so it doesn't extract any bitterness or really any flavor, but it does add a lot of aroma to, to the beer, a lot of hop aroma. Uh, and so we used to sometimes, if we're adding users later on, call that dry yuzuing. We're dry yuzuing the beer at this point. So at bed, you, you graduate up basically, and um, first you learn how to clean, and then you learn how to package the beer. So we did beers in bottles and, and kegs, and, those were all done by machines, so you have to learn how to clean those specific machines, you have to learn how to operate them. Most of the time it's fine, but sometimes something goes wrong, so you have to know how to get in there and fix that if something does go wrong. Um, so after you've finished learning how to package the beer at bed, then you move into working in the cellar, cellaring the beer. And that means essentially managing the fermentation. Um, so when the beer is in the fermentation tank, the yeast is eating the sugar, it's expelling a lot of carbon dioxide. We have to closely monitor the temperature, the amount of sugar that's remaining in the tank. So we call that the gravity of the beer, the pH of the beer. And we have to make sometimes careful adjustments about this. Uh, and then it's also necessary to transfer the beer, beer from one tank to another tank as well after it's finished fermenting. And so cleaning and sterilizing are really the key jobs in cellaring. 
Uh, and then the final thing that you learn is how to actually make the beer in the first place. So you kind of work backwards through the process. Uh, and there were three systems at Baird. There was a 250-litre system, a 1,000-litre system, and then a huge 6,000-litre system. And again, it was a graduation process. So you start on the 250 system, which is completely manual. You have to operate all those valves by hand. And then you go up to the 1,000-litre system, which is, I'm not going to say automatic, but the valves operated by air pressure, and you have a control panel. And then the 6,000-litre system is essentially computer-controlled. So you get to sit in a nice air-conditioned room rather than bending over a hot kettle. <laughs> That's the dream right there. Right. But it's so great to go through it first manually and, and learn going up the ladder, so to speak. I would prefer to learn that way. Absolutely. And it's the correct way of doing it because if you just sit in the air-conditioned room, the computer is doing most of the work. So you don't really get an understanding of what's happening. But if you're down crouching under the kettle and operating valves by hand, you have to understand every part of the process and exactly what you're trying to do because you're doing it manually. And so it gives you a much better understanding of the process that way. That's great. And so that must have prepared you over those, well, you said a year and a half at Baird for eventually coming to this point where you've opened your own brewery. So I was in, in Shizuoka for a year and a half almost. Um, but at the time, my family was still here in Tokyo. So I'm married and I have two young kids and I was coming up every weekend to spend time with my family. And the plan was that eventually we would move down to Shizuoka, all of us. But for various reasons that ended up not being possible. So my family stayed up here. Uh, and after about a year and a half, it just wasn't sustainable anymore. My kids are pretty young. I needed to be able to spend more time with them. So I was actually almost headhunted by a local brewery here in Tokyo, which is called Ishikawa Shuzo. Um, there was a long, complicated chain of connections by which they came to know that I was a brewer who lived locally and was thinking about moving back to Tokyo. And so they offered me a position at Ishikawa Shuzo. So I worked there for about six months um, last year before I started this place by myself. All right, so let's talk about that transition. What made you decide, you know what, it's time to do it on my own? Um, it's fair to say, I think, that working at Ishikawa Shuzo was a different experience than working at Baird. Um, it's primarily a sake company. Um, they make uh, a Nihonshu called Tanajima. Uh, and so it was very interesting. I got to see some of the sake brewing process, which is actually very similar to how you make beer. There are some key differences, but it is a brewing process, not a distillation process. Um, but it was a very a traditional Japanese company and they were rooted in doing things in a, in a fairly traditional way uh, and at Baird I had been studying you know, one of the leading breweries in Japan and I thought that I knew best so when I came in and I found that they were doing things differently this led to some conflict and I'm willing to accept that it was probably entirely my fault there was no conflict before I arrived and then there was conflict when I was there I would love to hear what the difference is, like a couple of the differences, like what do you mean by traditional brewing? Like what are they doing that's so different from what Baird was doing? So because they're a, a sake brewery primarily that also makes beer, a lot of the techniques that they used for making beer were sort of informed by the sake side. And I, I've seen a little bit of the sake brewing process, but in no way do I have a deep understanding of it. So I, I can't really comment on, on how things are done there. But the way that things are cleaned in a sake brewery tends to be, um, from, a, from a beer perspective, a little bit too light. In breweries, we really, really like to get in there with aggressive chemicals and high heat and make sure that stuff is sparkling clean. Whereas in a sake brewery, things tend to be rinsed with cold water, and that's it. Okay. Uh, and so I was used to a far more rigorous cleaning regime. Um, which, as I said before, is really, really important when you work in a brewery. So that was one of the differences that I noticed first up. Yeah, okay. I, I can see where you'd be distressed, like, this needs to be cleaner. This is not clean enough. What is happening here? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. So you naturally, based on the history you had with Barry, you felt, I need this to be cleaner. For example, I would like to do it more. I'd like to maybe find a middle ground there between the two and but in your own way in your own place 
Yeah, exactly. And uh, once I had decided that I knew better than everybody else, then it was a fairly natural progression to, to have to set up by myself. And um, so I've, I've lived here in the west of Tokyo for quite a few years now. I was down in Shizuoka, obviously, for a year and a half. But uh, we've lived here for about six, seven years now. Uh, and I've noticed that in Tachikawa, there are a lot of bars and restaurants, um, but there are no breweries. There used to be a brewery just up the road here in Nishikuni Tachi, but um, it closed uh, slightly over a year ago. Do you know why it closed? Um, unfortunately, it was because their beer was not very good. <laughs> I think was okay. the main reason. They weren't they, cleaning enough. They, they were not cleaning they enough. Cleaning. Their beer wasn't very good and they didn't market it. Um, so two fairly key failings there. Um, but I saw that there was uh, space in the market here because there are a lot of bars, a lot of restaurants. I think people in Japan like to support their local area. And from what I've learned about talking to people here in Tachikawa, that's even more so in this part of West Tokyo. So people in Tachikawa really do like to support local Tachikawa businesses. And do you live around here? I do, yes. I live in Nishikuni Tachi. So okay. it's a short 15 minute cycle ride from here. Have you lived in this area for quite a while? Uh, yes, about six, seven years. Oh, great. Um, so you have a lot of no local knowledge and probably knew quite a few people around here. Yes, yes, uh, I, I like to think so. Um, although starting a business in the area is a, a real eye-opener. You think you know an area, but then once you start getting involved in local business, you realize that actually you know very little about it. Yeah. Uh, and that's really a microcosm of, of everything that we found um, with regards to, to starting a business. You think to yourself, well, I can make beer, I hope that it's good beer, that's enough, I can start a business. In actual fact, actually doing the thing that your business sets out to do is a, almost a relatively small part of running a business compared to um, the, the accounting, the organization, the licensing requirements, and all the other kind of organization that has to go on around it. So I would love to be able to just say, I am a brewer, I own a brewery, we make beer, Actually, I guess I'm kind of a manager and we have to do everything else on top of that. And then also sometimes we get to make some beer as well. How did you find out how to do all those things in such a different culture from where you're from? And, and I don't, are you fluent in Japanese? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm fluent in Japanese. I can get by, well, I can bludgeon Japanese into submission um, <laughs> sufficiently to get by in most meetings. So. It's been a fairly steep learning curve in some places. Um, at Baird and at Ishikawa Shuzo, it was basically a Japanese environment, even more so at Ishikawa Shuzo. Nobody else there spoke English at all. Um, so I was comfortable enough with day-to-day -day conversation. But then once you have to have a meeting at the tax office with your tax officer, that's a whole different ballgame. You have to understand everything that they're saying. You have to make yourself very clear. There's a whole new set of vocabulary that you have to prepare going in there. Um, so, although I wasn't a very good student when I was in university, with all that maths, I've had to become a good student since, and that means preparing beforehand. Okay, what are the words that are gonna come up in this meeting? Let's study them beforehand. What is it exactly that I'm gonna have to say in this meeting? Let's write it down, let's actually practice saying it before I get in there. Let's run it by a native speaker to make sure that I'm saying it correctly. Uh, and then, of course, in every meeting, lots of words, lots of concepts will come up that maybe I don't know. So let's make a note of all of those and let's go and research them, make sure I understand all of these. Uh, and so it's been a really good Japanese school. Um, if anybody, if you're hoping to learn a bit of Japanese, start a business. Okay. Very soon, you will have to learn a lot of Japanese. Where did you go first to open your business? Um, so one of the reasons that we chose Tachikawa is because the local government here um, offers um, some fairly good business development loans. Uh, and so having found out about those, one of the prerequisites was that I had to attend a series of seminars to make sure I understood the basis of how a business is run. Uh, and so that was the first port of call. Um, it was in July and August last year. So each Sunday I would go and attend uh, a seminar here in the local community center with a bunch of other Japanese people who were all hoping to start their own businesses. Uh, and it was a really interesting experience to see what kind, of, um, what kind of businesses were being started and what kind of other 
local people were, were hoping to, to get started with their own businesses. But I, to be honest, I was so focused on just understanding what was going on in the room. <laughs> it was, there was a lot of accounting, uh, a lot of accounting vocabulary that I had to, to remember. Um, and so I was very focused on that. And then we also had to present to the group as well, which was a nice surprise for me. Okay, and everyone please stand up and uh, present what you've been writing down from, from this. <laughs> uh, I'm not a natural public speaker, so that was fairly nerve-wracking, but you just got to get it done. So that must have taught you a lot about the things you were going to need to do to get started. But I'm sure not from the brewery side, only from the general side of a business. That's right, yes. So they were fairly basic seminars. It was things like, you know, this is how you pay your staff. This is why revenue and cash flow are not the same thing. Fairly standard concepts, but it was, it was useful to go through it all. And um, I, I learned a lot of Japanese vocabulary through them as well. Um, with regards to, to running a brewery though, I had a decent amount of experience um, from Bed and from Ishikawa Shuzo about the practical day-to-day -day realities of it. Um, but one of the other really helpful things was just building up a network of other people who had either started breweries, who worked in breweries, who worked at different levels of breweries, uh, and also the, the management staff at Bed were extremely helpful. So my old boss there was a guy called Chris Poole, who has actually started his own brewery now as well. Um, they're called uh, Shiokaze Brew Lab, and they're over in Chiba. Um, if you're in Chiba, I recommend they're in Soga. Um, and so just having a network of people who are going through similar issues, who are, had either gone down this road already and been successful or were starting down the same road was incredibly helpful. And it's one of the biggest lessons that we've learned about starting a business here. Um, I should mention that I'm not doing this by myself. Um, I have a business partner, his name is Dan Bellamy. Uh, and so having each other to rely on has also been incredibly helpful. But then just having friends, nothing beats that. Nothing beats having friends when you're trying to do something difficult or something new. So it could be the friends who come in here on a quiet Tuesday afternoon when there's nobody else and they, they buy a few beers and that helps your bottom line. It could be the friends who run their own breweries and are willing to share their knowledge with you. It could be the friends who work in other places in the beer industry, so are willing to, to help you to make contacts to buy beer, to help you to figure out what you need to do, to help you to navigate the labyrinth that is the regulatory framework around running a tap room or running a brewery. A lot of times I found out about things that we absolutely had to do by somebody mentioning them in conversation. Oh, by the way, did you know that you have to have a food safety officer? I was like, uh, um, uh, yes, of course, I knew that. Um, how exactly does that happen again? <laughs> um, and so it's been, yes, having friends is, is one of the, the crucial lessons that we've learned. It's super helpful. That's fantastic. And I, I have seen over the years, what I remember when we, probably around the time we were first in Japan, there was no craft beer here in, in the Tokyo area. Um, and I think over the years, I've really seen it, the scene flourish. So it's, it's a good, I think it's an exciting industry to be in in Japan. Absolutely. Yes, it's going through a real uh, renaissance at the moment. So I think the initial Jibiru boom, craft beer boom here in Japan happened at about 20 years ago when some of the laws around the size of the brewery or about getting a license to run a brewery were, were relaxed a bit. Um, but at that time, the main focus was on jibiru, so beer as, I don't know, a souvenir that you would buy when you go on a travel somewhere. So we're going to make a local brewery, we're going to make a very standard beer, and then we're going to dump whatever our local speciality is into the beer. Could be mushrooms, <laughs> could be wasabi, could be just about anything, gyoza. Let's put gyoza in the beer, why not? And, you know, there was some good beer to come out of that boom, but there was also a lot of very terrible beer that didn't really hang around a lot. Um, but now I think we're going through a second boom in Japan. And this time, people are a lot more focused on the quality of the beer, the quality of the ingredients, the quality of being able to serve the beer in a nice environment as well. Uh, and for beer drinkers like us, that's excellent. 
that's fantastic. Yes. And for beer producers as well, it's it's a really exciting time, as you say, to be in the industry because a lot of people are coming to craft beer for the first time and we get to help them to experience this thing that we love. Yeah, and I have to say, having been to some craft breweries around the world and especially in Tokyo, the warm environment that you walk into when you go into a craft brewery is so fun. It's like a special thing in Tokyo. And I want to say in Tokyo, it's not always easy to connect with people on the surface that you don't know mm. when you first meet them. but. In a craft brewery, I find that to not be the case. <laughs> the beer certainly helps, doesn't it? Yeah. Your non-munication. Yeah, and you stand up there looking at the all the different names of the beers, and I always find someone comes up next to me, and you start discussing, like, which beer are you getting? What does that mean? <laughs> so It's great, isn't it? Yeah. And you can, you can forge connections with people um, in the local community. So that's one of the things that we want to do here. We definitely want to be part of the Tachikawa community. Um, and that means appearing at local events once those restart, uh, but also just providing a space for community activities. So you might have seen our art wall here. We're trying to offer just a free exhibition space for local artists. Um, if you are a local artist and you're interested in showing your work for free, please get in touch with us. We would like to talk to you. Fantastic. Let's talk about the name of your brewery. What did you decide to name your business here? Sakamichi Brewing. Sakamichi Brewing. Okay. Where does Sakamichi come from? So, um, as I mentioned, um, I work here with my business partner, Daniel Bellamy. And um, the way that we originally got to know each other was through cycle touring. Uh, so, we both enjoyed cycling all around Japan, visiting different areas, going to some fairly rural parts of Japan. Um, and Dan was usually in charge of making the routes. So we plot them out beforehand and then we have little GPS devices so we know where we're going. Um, but what we would usually find is that at some point along the ride, oh, we have to ride up this staircase or we have to ride along the top of this sea wall with a 40 foot cliff on the other side. This is an interesting road that you've chosen for us, Dan. It's a very interesting road. <laughs> and so that phrase, interesting roads, really stuck in our memory. Uh, and then when it came time to, to choose a name for this place, um, we knew that we wanted it to be a Japanese name. So one of the problems that some companies in Japan have faced, some Japanese breweries have faced, is when they start exporting their beer overseas, if it doesn't have a Japanese name, overseas customers won't really connect it with Japan. Egg beer? This is Japanese? Sounds Scottish. Uh, so we wanted to plan ahead to the day when hopefully we will be able to export our beer and have a name that sounded Japanese, but was also easy enough for both local people and English-speaking English -speaking people to say. Uh, and that name, Interesting Roads, that phrase, Interesting Roads, just leapt out at me because running a brewery, or trying to open a brewery, is also an interesting road that we have chosen for ourselves. Uh, and it wasn't really possible to translate it directly into Japanese, but Sakamichi, we felt, was a close enough approximation. Um, it means steep road or mountain road. So sometimes we have customers coming in here, and we're on a fairly main road here, and they'll say, why are you called Sakamichi Road? This road isn't steep at all. You're not in the mountains. There are no steep roads around here. And so it's a nice way to start a little conversation about how Dan and I know each other. I mean, I love mountains, so I have to say I love your logo, which is looks like a mountain. And then why are there two lines? Oh, is that is that the road? Bingo. Hey! You got it. If a newbie can figure it out, <laughs> you've done a good job. I Thank think. you very much, yes. Yeah. So what role does Dan play as a partner? Because I, I always find it interesting when you partner up to start a business. Oh, we're equal partners in everything okay. here. What are his strengths, I should ask? So Dan um, knows me very well, um, especially as a beer drinker so so that's a bit of a weird compliment to say isn't it he's not an alcoholic <laughs> well this beer episode is very good that i'm drinking right thank you very now. much um dan has a very good and deep understanding of beer and he'll be able to taste a beer and say what's going on in there what he likes about it what he doesn't like about it he also has a very good memory for beers uh, and i have to say that i have a terrible memory so i will drink five beers in the evening love three of them and then forget completely forget what those beers were and never be able to remember. But Dan is able to look at a list of beers that are available, 
like our guest beers and say, well, I've had that, that was great. I've had this, it was very nice. I've had something else that this brewery made, it was really good. And so his knowledge of beer really helps us um, in here as we're trying to, to get in guest beers. So we have well, seven guest taps on at the moment and then we have a fridge full of uh, packaged beer as well. Um, and although there is a lot of really excellent beer in the world, there's also some bad beer. And we don't want to serve any of that. So having somebody here who has such a good knowledge and understanding of beer is, is really helpful. What are your long-term plans for Second Beach? I know this is such a new business. We already mentioned it was opened at a very difficult time for all businesses. Where would you like Sakamichi to go? Um, yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So I think it's important for any business to, to look to the long term. If you look at really successful businesses, they're always thinking four, five, six steps down the road, not just about their immediate survival, but also about what they want to do in the future. And one of the things that we've always said here is that we really want to be part of the Tachikawa community. We think that community is really important. Uh, and so that does mean going out to events, being a, a part of the community, community externally from here, but also welcoming the community into here and providing a space for community activities within our tap room. Um, one way that we've tried to, to really cement ourselves as being the Tachikawa Brewery is that we like to give local uh, names to all of our beers. So our tap room is in Shibasaki-cho, so naturally our first beer is called Shibasaki Session. Um, we've got another beer coming up soon um, and trying to think of some good local names to use for that one. Um, it's going to be a Kelsch that we brewed in collaboration with Devilcraft. So something to do with devils and local local devils. Still thinking about that. Oh, really? I don't know, something. Hmm, yeah, local devils. Local okay. devils. That's exciting. So yeah, we'd like to establish us, ourselves as you know the West Tokyo or the Tachikawa Brewery. But then further down the road, we want to to be able to export our beer as well, uh, ideally, and also to be you know a force for positive change. In, in the west of Tokyo. So we, um, both Dan and I, are very um, concerned and involved in environmental issues. We want to try and run an environmentally sustainable brewery. That's very important to both of us. Uh, and so we're always trying to reduce our waste, to reuse where we can, to recycle whatever we can, to design the brewery with those things in mind to, to keep our energy costs at a minimum and to, to make beer in a way that is not going to be you know, harming the environment too much, um, and also to do things in a sustainable way. I love that. And it sounds like you started with this nature connection that you and Dan had. So, yeah, it makes sense. Like Absolutely, yeah. to keep that theme going, and I hope all breweries are trying to be as sustainable environmentally as they can. Mm, absolutely. And I think it, it doesn't just make moral sense or environmental sense, it also makes business sense. You know, the less mm -hmm. energy that you use, the less money you have to spend on energy. Yeah. Well, I'm wishing you all luck. Have you have you seen, are people starting to come back slowly after? I know we had like a, a state of emergency here in Tokyo for a while. We're technically out of that, but our case number is rising at the mm. moment. Have, what have you seen business sense and traffic-wise here recently? It's a difficult needle to thread, isn't it? Because obviously we want people to come in here, but also we want everybody who comes here to be safe. So we don't want too many people to come into the tap room. So we're trying to make sure that this is a safe environment. We limit the number of customers that can come into the tap room at any one time. We try and keep all of the tables separate. We try and keep good ventilation here. We have alcohol gel at the door. Um, Dan and I always wear masks the whole time that we're in here. Um, and uh, during the declaration of emergency, we actually did have to close for a while, um, just while we were getting our takeout license. And then we were operating for takeout only for a while. Um, but now things are picking up again, uh, and it is getting busy. I think August is peak beer drinking time, really, <laughs> in Japan. It's so hot at the moment that people need lots of cool drinks to keep themselves hydrated and uh, this is a good place to pick up a few cool drinks. Yeah, I can tell you this beer that you've given me, the Shibasaki, is really refreshing. Thank so. you very much. I'm so excited that I found this place and that you've introduced it and, and 
I wish you guys all the success in the future. Do you have any tips for someone who is super into beer that would like to get into the beer industry? Uh, don't. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, it's, it's a really friendly industry, actually. Um, one of the things that I have constantly found, and this is worldwide, is that brewers, people who work in beer, are incredibly friendly. And so if you go to a brewery and say, hey, I'm interested in beer, they will be happy to talk to you. And if you say, I work at a brewery, they will be happy to share their beer with you and talk about how they make it. Um, there's no, no great deal of secrecy. There are no real trade secrets in beer because we're all essentially working with the same ingredients and the same processes. Um, so if you're interested in beer, go to your local brewery. Talk to the brewers, talk to the people who work there. They will be able to, to steer you correctly. Um, I guarantee they also like beer and they will be very happy to talk to you about beer as much as you want to. Email your favorite brewery perhaps and yep. say if you want to work there. Just directly send them an email saying, please could I have a job? I yeah. love that. I mean, if it's a very nice industry, like it happened with you, they might get lucky and learn all the things they need to know. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Um, so it's, it's hard work, but we're a friendly lot. So, random question, how often do your parents come to Japan? Now that I have children, they tend to come here quite often actually. Obviously they can't come at the moment, um, but they're coming once or twice a year at the moment um, to see their grandkids. I'd love to hear about when they first come to see your actual brewery, that would be so exciting. I know, yeah. They were here um, fairly early this year, I think around about January, February time when we were just doing construction here. Dan and I did a lot of the construction in this place as well. And I was very keen for them to, to get in here and, and help out, but unfortunately the timing just didn't really match up. So I wasn't able to force my elderly parents into hard labor. <laughs> well, that's so great. Well, congratulations on opening Sakamichi. I'm so glad we were able to reconnect, and I look forward to coming back here again many times in the future. Well, we look forward to having you. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you. And my final question is, if people want to reach out and follow you or find you, where can they go? Um, we're in all of the usual SNS places. Uh, Twitter is at Sakamichi Beer, um, Instagram at Sakamichi Brewing, uh, and we're also on Facebook at Sakamichi Brewing. Uh, and you can also find us at our website, sakamichibrewing.com. Thank you so much, Matthew, and thank you for giving me the tour, which I'm going to also add to this episode. Great. Thank you very much for coming in today. It was good to talk to you. I don't know about you listeners, but hearing about how beer is made and everything that it takes to open your own brewery makes me want to open another cold one and give a big cheers, or kampai, as they say in Japanese, to Matthew and Dan for their hard work on opening Sakamichi Brewing. I loved how Matthew really gave us such step-by-step -step details on how beer is made and how he went from teaching English to following his true passion of beer. I also loved how Matthew just sent an email to Baird Brewing asking to work for them, despite never having worked in the industry before. This is such a great reminder that sometimes the only thing standing between you and the future you dream about is simply asking for what you want and taking action. And of course, working hard. We're going to put the links to Sakamichi Brewing on theschooloftravels.com and please stop by if you're ever in Tokyo. It's about 45 minutes door to door from Shinjuku Station in central Tokyo to Sakamichi, taking just one train. I know that I'm personally looking forward to visiting them again the first chance that I get. Thank you to Matthew and Dan for all of your hard work and taking a more interesting road in life by opening Sakamichi Brewing. Finally, please stay tuned right after this for a private tour of the brewery with Matthew. Thank you so much for your support, listeners, as always. And until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money in this world. Living in this perfect world.
this is the taproom space. Um, I'm going to leave the shutters down for now because it'll help to block the noisy from, from outside. Um, but yeah, basically everything you see in here was either done by us or by our carpenter. So it was a carpenter for the bed taprooms from there. So the tables are all handmade, the furniture is handmade by us. All the decorating as well was done by us. Um, all the good places were done by the carpenter. He did. If you see anything good, he did it. If you see anything bad, we probably did it. I love all the wood in here, especially the wood. Is it all different types of wood? That's right, yeah, all different kinds of trees. Um, those are from the, uh, our carpenter's uh, grounds. So he lives in the Izu Peninsula. He has a little farm there. And these are all just branches that he's cut off the trees. What is this called? This, like, official, what's the official word for? Tap handle. Tap handle, okay. Tap those yes. are really nice tap handles. Um, these boards, the menu boards up here, we made from the offcuts when we were making the tabletops, right? It's all the same wood. Basically, the whole place is self-financed, right? So we had to save as much money as we could when we were building it. And that meant basically doing everything by ourselves, if we could. Um, so yeah, just about everything in here um, was either salvaged or, or made from, from lumber that we purchased at the local DIY store. Um, I think it's got a bit of a handmade aesthetic. It feels really cozy though, I really like it. Thank you very much. Um, this is the big sink that we use for washing the dishes. So when we got this in, like the space between this wall and this wall is mandated by law. Right? It has to be a certain width. And we got this sink second hand, but it was slightly too wide. So I had to get an angle grinder and basically just cut the back off it. It's the first the time I've ever done anything like that. You can see it's not a very good cut. But, oh, wow. but it got done. I managed to get the whole back of this sink off with an angle. Long as you never would take into consideration. For exactly, the yes. Kitchen. Something that I hadn't even really considered. Yeah. Um, our register also is something that we got from a friend. He didn't want it anymore because it was too old and too decrepit. So we said, <laughs> that sounds like the perfect register for us. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, as you mentioned, the tap handles here. So we have eight taps um, at the moment, although we're hoping to expand later. Um, number one is our own beer that we made, and then two through six are all Japanese breweries, mainly breweries where we know the people, uh, and then seven and eight are imported, usually from America. Okay, so they're all, are they always changing, imported, and just you keep it at two? All the beers are changing, except for number one, which is our constant. Everything changes all the time. So we try and have always the same kind of style. So number two is usually a lager, number three is a wheat beer or a fruit beer, number four is a dark beer, and so on. But the, the exact beer changes. So as soon as we finish the cake, basically, we've got another one lined up, ready to go. Very nice. Uh, and this is the space where the brewery is going to be, okay? So at the moment we're what's called a phantom brewery, and we basically just go to other breweries and use their system to make our beer, um, use their equipment to make our beer, and then bring it back here to sell. But the plan is to have our own brewery in this space. Setting up a brewery is, is a minefield in Japan. The tax office, the health office, the, the funding and everything, all of these governmental agencies have to work together in a way that they're not used to working together. Um, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Oh, it's a freezer. Ooh, just having an interview in here. Just having, ooh, this is, this, is the, this is the coldest I've felt since the rainy season finished. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's seven degrees in here usually, which is the temperature we serve our beer at. So these are different cakes of beer that we have on the moment. So they go up through these things to the taps here. These are the regulators, so we can set the CO2 pressure in each of them. And then underneath, we have ready to go the next beer. So once this cake finishes, once this one finishes, we have a different beer. This is a passion fruit sour that's coming up. That one's gone. Nice and here, we should hang out. <laughs> we do the whole interview in the freezer. <laughs> this is handmade as well. We wanted some kind of shelf or something that we could use to maximize the storage in here. Um, so it's of my own design. I'm waiting for it to collapse. It hasn't done so yet. <laughs> but I guess it's only a matter of time. It looks nice. It looks. <laughs> I want to say it looks sturdy, but uh... mm. there's a lot of weight on here. Takes are takes out quite heavy. Yeah. Uh, and this is all our stock of packaged beer. Uh, Sounds so good. Coconut kiwa porter. Mm. Yum. Dark ale with 
pan toasted coconuts. Delicious. Yeah, this is going to be a great space for the brewery itself, I think. Uh, we were really lucky to find this space because we need something with a quite high ceiling. The tanks themselves are quite tall, right? So we needed something that we would be on the ground floor, not lift super heavy equipment up to the second or third floor, uh, and have high ceilings and hopefully on the main road. So we were just really lucky to find this place. Yeah. Um, so once the brewery goes in, we have to put in an extra floor above this, so this will become a drain by that time. But you need a kind of cambered floor that leads down to the drain, so you can just hose down everything in the brewery. Or if anything leaks, it will go into the drain rather than hanging around on the floor by that time. But at the moment, this space is kind of our carpentry and general storage space. All of our tools. I like the tools hanging on the wall there. I was very pleased when I did that. <laughs> yes, now I'm genuinely a carpenter. Yes. Um, this is where the mill is going to go. Um, should I talk a bit about how beer is made? That would be great, yes. 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 Maybe we can do that. For someone like me who <laughs> would <laughs> yeah. like a refresher. So basically the ingredients will come in through this door here. Yeah. The malt and everything. We process them here. They get turned into wood here. This is where the system, the brewing system will be. And then there'll be two rows of tanks here where the wort gets turned into beer by the yeast. And when the brewery comes in, we don't have to knock this wall down to get it all in. And then we'll turn this into a window so people can wash. Oh, I love that. As they're drinking. And it'll be very good motivation to keep the brewery clean as well. That's true. Customers can see in. So this is the door you came through earlier. Okay. Yes. Confusing. <laughs> Um, it's important to consider sort of the flow when you're designing a brewery, right? So you don't want to double back on yourself at any point. So ingredients come in here, you get processed here, turned into the uh, processed and packaged here, and then they go into the fridge there and they go out to the customers. So it's all one kind of big circle in that way. I had never considered that before. Did you learn that from reading a bunch of books about brewing beer, talking to friends, or? Reading books was certainly part of it, yes. Um, but I, I've worked at other breweries as well, right? so it was partly reading books and studying about this and partly just the experience of working in other, other breweries. 